Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Tony Spicola, a Southern Colorado legend. The modern concert business is a $10 billion industry, but it wasn't always that way. Tony was of note in the very beginning as a manager and major concert promoter, and that rarity, someone who is held in great regard as a gentleman and a mensch in a pretty rugged business. Welcome, Tony. Thank you. You're originally from Trinidad, Colorado. Yes. What brought you to the big city of Colorado Springs and Pueblo? <laughs> Work, jobs. Smaller towns, not only now, but back then, still were struggling with jobs. And so the young people, even smaller communities, say a populace of 50, 100,000, still will gravitate to larger communities because of jobs. When my grandfather immigrated to the United States, he went to Trinidad because it was a railroad and the coal mines. There were jobs. That's what it was all about. So I uh, partied too much at college, wasn't good, and <laughs> no diploma. And uh, that there I regret because I missed that, not only the academic advantage, but just the social part of it. So moved to Pueblo just looking for work. In the mid-60s, you managed the best local bands in yeah. southern Colorado. For quite a few years, I was a professional photographer. It was photography that led me to eventually taking pictures of groups, local talent. And that was my first introduction. I always had a love for music. My love for music was always there. So I started exploring the possibility of maybe managing or handling these acts in the area, telling them what to do and what I thought they shouldn't do and so on. And so that photography led me to that relationship. I got deeper and deeper with the local talent in Southern Colorado in terms of not only managing them, but hopefully recording them and maybe try to find that next Neil Diamond or whatever. So that went on for some time. We should mention bands like the Trolls. Yes, well, the Trolls, the Beast, Patty Joe and the Teardrops. I managed Patty Joe, just a great voice, and we did some product with her. Then I grew from there and managed Chan Romero of Hippie, hippie, shake. They say one hit wonder, but it was a big one. It's in a lot of movies and covered by the Beatles. And a hit for the swinging blue jeans. Oh, yeah, the Georgia satellites, and we could go on and on. Yep. We tried very hard to get that second or third hit. We traveled to New York and uh, hooked up with Jeff Berry, Shadow Morton of Vanilla Fudge, and we gave it a real go. But the product we put out just was not another hippie, hippie shake. At that point is when I started thinking from a business standpoint, what about buying talent and promoting those that have already had the success? And that was the turning point, going into the concert business. And this is the early to mid-60s. Music executives, agents, journalists, the industry, if you will, they didn't think that this was the beginning of anything. They thought it was the end of something. Right. Did you sense the opposite, that there was something to build on here? My personal passion started with jazz. 
and then that rolled to R&B. And so I kind of had a feeling that it would always be going somewhere. It was not going to go away. It was just a transition of a music fabric that just kept incorporating one part into another part. I had no doubt in my mind that rock and roll was here to stay for a long, long time. In that era, the 40-date, 50-date tour hadn't been established yet. That cycle, a little more loosey-goosey, would you say? Yes, yes. (laughs) Uh, There were some agents that had a lot to do with this, like Frank Barcelona with Premier Talent gave birth to the tours, Dick Clark with his caravan of stars. You didn't know it at the time, but they were writing the book. The venues of note in Colorado Springs, you had a club, Pinocchio's. Right. There was the Colorado Springs City Auditorium in its heyday, and Kelker Junction, once described by Bob Yazel as an airplane hangar type of club. Is that accurate? It was a big, old building, metal, but it had a capacity on it, almost like a small movie theater, but there were no seats. It just was a lot of beer and a lot of space. What else do you need, Tony? (laughs) It wasn't because somebody decorated it so nice. The city auditorium is now virtually vacant. It's a good old building that saw a lot of things. But in its heyday, at the height of the British invasion, you lured Eric Burden and the animals. I would say probably 60% of the shows that I produced or co-promoted were at the City Auditorium. Let's riff on a few things. Go ahead. Paul Revere and the Raiders. Great act. They were hotter than a pistol. Glenn Campbell performed at City Auditorium with the Tinkers, one of the local acts that you mentored. That was early, early, and then later on hooked up with him again with By the Time I Get to Phoenix and all his great songs. You tend to remember nice people, and there was a total gentleman. That you're awakened from the back roads by the rivers of my memories, ever smiling, ever gentle on my mind. There was a group called Fever Tree, San Francisco Girls, very good. We had them in a club in Colorado Springs, and it was wintertime. We had an opening act, local band, played for six hours. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the reason they played for six hours is because Fever Tree was in Wyoming and couldn't get out of there because of some kind of storm or whatever. And at the club, while everybody's in there, they paid for Fever Tree. I got a guy in Colorado Springs to fly to Wyoming and get them and get them down to the Springs to do the show. And they used the opening band's instruments. And we got through it at about midnight, just so I didn't have to refund all the money. (laughs) (laughs) Out there it's summertime. San 
I will say this to you. <laughs> Fever Tree broke up the next day. <laughs> you did a lot of the great garage bands of the time. The Leebs with Hey Joe, the Standells, Dirty Water, their big hit. The Music Machine with Talk Talk. You booked them on New Year's Eve. Yeah, that was interesting. You know, in those days, those auditoriums had everything. A circus, as an example, would come in there. In those days, the circus would travel. We had a show one night. The night before was a circus. So when we got in there the next day to load in for our rock and roll show, the circus had moved out. But there was one problem. They had an elephant that didn't want to leave. He just standing out in the middle of that auditorium. Everything was moved out. But he wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> so what could we do but proceed with setting up the show? And just about an hour before showtime, he decided it was okay. And he left and we went on you know, with showtime. Those facilities, days like that, were different. Let's detail a couple more bands. The Young Rascals. Wow. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Not only great artists, but great composers. Buffalo Springfield came through with Stephen Stills, Neil Young. It was just a short window while they were together, but who would imagine what would come out of that band? Listen to my bluebird laugh She can't tell you why Deep within her heart you see She knows all I cry The Yardbirds with Jimmy Page? Oh, yes. There again, look what came out of it. Little did we know. Didn't have to worry about selling tickets on those shows. you started a series of events called the Swingdings, one of them with Ike and Tina Turner. They had the four-piece Kings of Rhythm band, three Ikeettes that danced, and the road manager, you got all that for $900 flat? Correct. Between their setup crew and everything, one always say there was a bus that held 25 and there was 50 people. They had a budget too. different than one page. The acts themselves signed it with their social security numbers listed. It was so simple to do business at that time. And I have to be honest with you, at that time, I no more knew that was their social security number than a man on the moon. It was friendly. It was warm. It was fun. 
I'm not judging today's concert business at all. Oh, go I, ahead. I'm just saying my, <laughs> I'm just, well, from the acts to the managers, anybody that's still in the business will tell you it's very complicated. The Who played at Kelker Junction in August of 1968. Mm-hmm. This was a year after I Can See for Miles had become their first American hit. A year before, Tommy the most amazing live band I ever saw from that era. And again, this was not part of a Denver play. They just played Colorado Springs. That's it. Not having any idea that it was going to be part of some great history. The opening act was Beast that had oh, yeah. Kenny Passarelli oh, and yes. Bob Yazel in its yeah. ranks. Kenny, yeah. of course, went on to Barnstorm and so many other groups. Bob Yazel was in Sugarloaf for a period. The review in the paper said that Beast was better than The Who. Well, uh, I mean, I liked The Beast. They had some brass and they were kind of like a blood, sweat, and tears. They were fantastic. In the mid-60s, those nascent years, shows were built on the old vaudeville model, for lack of a better analogy, where bands simply ran through their hits. But with the Who and the Yardbirds and the Springfield, there was that change to present full concerts where the headliner would play a long show and it was anchored by their musicianship. Oh, yes. But, you know, I got to tell you, those people come to hear those hits. Elton John and Billy Joel were on. And I went to the show because these are great artists. And you go to hear the jukebox. Well, that particular night, Elton John, he's a smart guy. He just sits down and just pounds those hits out. He knows why they're there. But that particular night, Billy Joel was in a mood. A lot of them, they get tired of playing it. So they do other things. That particular night, Elton John blew him off the stage because they want to hear your hits. KYSN was a station known as Kissin' down in Southern Colorado, owned the local AM Top 40 market in the 60s. Steve Scott was their star disc jockey. You ended up owning a station called KDZA. How did that fit into the ferment? Getting older and shaping your life going forward. And I met my partner, Karen, and rock and roll and concerts weren't the most stable thing. As the music grew, and so the popularity grew, and a lot of the facilities that I had worked for years were too small. And so there was a problem there in terms of trying to squeeze in. We got maybe a couple hundred people outside in a small place that holds 3,000 people. So what's another two, 300 people, you know? So instead of tearing the ticket, you turn around and go back in the box office and sell it again, one night particularly. As I was getting these tickets and going to go sell them again, a voice said, Tony, and it was the manager of the hall. I still remember how embarrassed I was, (laughs) how greedy I was, just trying to make it all work, you know, and maybe just a little bit more, maybe a hundred more people. It's not going to hurt that much. In this new era of concerts, beyond the music, these shows had a sense of community. 
This was the only way that fans could see their heroes at the time. Bands weren't on television all that often, and that engendered a sense of mystery about the acts. Fans came to shows thinking they were discovering something. Yes, yes. And if you stood 10 feet away from a band in a small theater and heard them play, you were with them for life. Yes. Nowadays, it's just press a button. And what song do you want? How many times do you want to hear it? The quirkiness of those shows, like seeing The Who in a venue for $3.50, that is when that sense of intimacy and rarity started to evaporate. Rock lost its innocence. It became big about numbers. The big bands moved from that theater circuit to arenas and ultimately to stadiums. You allude to Frank Barcelona of Premier Talent, who created the blueprint of the modern concert business. Frank was a booking agent, and he imagined a full network of concert tours by the bands. Promoters were linked with each other across the country. They got to carve out their own scenes in their cities, and together they had this network of venues in converted theaters and ballrooms. Promoters like Bill Graham in San yes. Francisco, yes. Barry Fay here in Denver. It was run like a cartel. I, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Each promoter was awarded had their, had his territory, territory. Yeah. and they controlled it. Someone once said it was like the mafia, but without the violence. Mm. I'd just say it was like the mafia. It was controlled. It was controlled, yes. So those promoters weren't above squeezing out competition. How did you navigate that? You partnered with Faye for shows. Oh, yes. Because of the size of the cities that I worked, primarily Colorado Springs, nobody noticed. I was under the radar. They didn't conflict because they weren't selling that many tickets in Springs to go to a Denver show. I was just a smaller operator. I didn't know some of the acts at that time would go on to do what they were going to do. Now, there were some things like the Who that came and didn't do Denver. And there were times when I personally didn't do the date, but when the Grateful Dead came down to Reed's Ranch outside of Colorado Springs and and play Denver. Those things happen. Barry Fay, I think it was the first thing he and I did together as co-promoters, that was Blue Cheer. His cut of the proceeds, I think, it was like 900 and some dollars. He went on to do some amazing things, but there was a time when he was with Tony Spicola in the Springs doing Blue Cheer. <laughs> Over the years, you booked well over 100 acts, from Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings on the Outlaws Tour to Aerosmith at the Colorado State Fair. One that's become somewhat legendary was Van Halen performing down in the Pueblo at the university. Yes, that was the one where MTV labeled it as one of the roughest nights in rock and roll. They had that one album, and it was just put the tickets on sale. So I co-promoted that with Feline. Here again, facilities. I was seemed like a lot of times trying to get something to fit someplace that was not meant to be. And in this case, it was a basketball gym. And I feel more seating, everybody standing up. It was too big a show, too much equipment. But we got it in there, even though the floor was buckling a little bit from all that heavy equipment. After the show, 
there seemed to be some question about their writer and weren't supposed to have any brown M&Ms and there was brown M&Ms and so on. Was I there every minute? I was moving around a lot. We were with the group in the dressing room before the show, and it was very quiet. In fact, it got so quiet that one of them said, why don't you turn on the amplifier a little bit, you know, and get some music going. Can you hear a pin drop? Nobody was mad or anything. They just weren't, weren't saying much, getting ready to be showtime. Well, the next day, there's all this publicity about all this damage that was done to the dressing rooms, fifty dollars to $100,000 worth of damage. The story came out, Time Magazine. It was in Van Halen's book. I have my own theory on it. They say that the group did all of the damage. I wasn't totally convinced that it was the group. It made a good story, and maybe they did. But I think that the road crew did a lot of that. Not as half as sexy as the band doing no, it. No, no. <laughs> and the story went like a rocket. The legendary brown M&M's story. Oh, yes. Getting things to present day, Tony, the evolution of the modern concert industry. At some point, organizations such as Concerts West created a uniform national touring system, and it destroyed the regionalism and personal touch of you early promoters. The consolidation of the industry continued, and now it's metastasized into monster companies, which have a stranglehold on the bulk of the business. For fans, it's meant greater distance from the performers, ticket prices that are equivalent to making a trip to Europe. But at the same time, more people than ever are attending concerts and presumably enjoying live music, and the sound and production has improved a ton. Maybe the escalation of the industry underscores the fact that the live music experience is undeniable. What's interesting in what you just said is that I call it old music from the 60s and 70s is still selling tickets at a rapid, rapid pace. But it's not just the music business. All businesses, titans, take over. It's who can buy out who. That's just the model now. Watch out where the huskies go. Don't you eat that yellow snow. Watch out where the huskies Frank Zappa, you're talking about one of the most interesting artists. Every time you picked up a group at the airport, first thing you want to do is motel, booze, and girls. That's all they cared about. That was their menu. The reason I make note of him, when you picked him up at the airport, he said, bring me to the facility. And he went down to the facilities and practiced all afternoon. Tony, what's your favorite musician's joke? What is the difference between a drummer and a sofa? A sofa will support a family. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure drummers will appreciate that. Thank you, Mike. That was awesome. Thank you. The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O music.org. Terrapin Care Station is a Boulder based, vertically integrated, consumer focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.